Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when ITV Night Network randomly showed an episode too close for comfort, the American remake of Keep It in the Family, for no obvious reason and to no obvious laughs. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that no one has ever seemed to, is writer Anna Kale. Anna! What are you up to and where can we find it? At the moment, I'm writing about film and TV and cultural bits and bobs for various lovely places like The Culture Vulture, uh, We Are Cult and Film Stories magazine. And I'm also trying to convince people to make my brilliant but very, very short, short film about celebrating middle-aged women. Okay, well, that's all a long way from, well, it's technically a book that constitutes your first choice. Let's just have a listen to, if you can make it to the end of this, everyone, a bit of music related to it. Okay, well, no prizes for guessing that wasn't the original version of the Neighbours theme tune. That was Des O'Connor's version, bafflingly released as a single to try and cash in on Neighbours Mania. But as you'll know if you've heard the few past editions of Looks Unfamiliar, there were lots of attempts to jump on the Neighbours bandwagon. And Anna, your first choice is one of these. Yes, the Neighbours sticker album, which meant a great deal to me. It was one of my prized possessions, and I absolutely loved that thing. It was, yeah, my pride and joy, really. Well, I've had a look online. I mean, everything had sticker albums around that time, you know, including some ridiculous things like June, the film of June did. What kids are going to want stickers of that? But I had a look at this, and I noticed it's from, I think it's from 1989. And it's quite, as you can imagine, it's very redolent of neighbours in that era. And the main thing that leapt out of me was it has the second Lucy in it. Sasha Close, the one that nobody remembers. Yeah, um, she's one of like four, maybe, with the four Lucys or something. It was an interesting time, 1989. It was massive neighbours on TV. It was everywhere. And yeah, obviously, like you say, they jumped on the bandwagon, get a sticker album out there. One thing's for certain, I loved collecting things. So in 1989, I was um, kind of 12, prime age, really, for, for loving the series and, and loving this kind of thing. And yeah, I became pretty obsessed with trying to complete this thing, which I never did. Well, I'm going to take a guess here, because all the mentions of it they could find online, people were saying, I almost completed it, but I never found the sticker of Kylie with the Queen Mother. Was that the one <laughs> you were missing as well? I think I had more than one missing, but I always used to get several of Mrs. Mangle's living room, <laughs> and in every packet that I picked up. Did you have the painting always. on the wall, that painting of her with the giant neck? I don't think I was in there, no, but oh, oh, honestly, you could do a whole sicker album devoted to uh, Mrs. Daniel's paintings, couldn't you? And Mrs. Mangle's living room was just the bane of my life because every packet that I picked up from the news agents, there was always a Mrs. Mangle's living room. And that thing still haunts me to this day, to be honest. Well, it's like me with the Return of the Jedi sticker album, where I just seem to keep getting again. There were three stickers of the sail barge, Jabba the Hutt sail barge, spread across three. And I always got the front of it and the back of it and never the middle. There's like piles of those two stickers. People got bored of swapping them with me in the end. But I'm going to do a quick test here, because if you were that obsessed with Neighbours at that point, 
you might be able to answer this straight away. Helen Daniels and her art, what was the name of her artist friend with the eye patch and where did he come from? Oh, no, I don't know. You don't remember Frank Darcy from the Bungle Bungles? <laughs> I, I thought everyone remembered that. <laughs> He's got to go, good eye! Darcy's the name! He looked like a kind of very angry Tom Baker, but with an eye patch. Maybe I've kind of blocked it out of my mind, just, you know, for, for my own sanity, really. I, yeah. Well, he's not in here, but I did find a couple of these sort of spreads online, one of which I think is supposed to be Musical Neighbours, but it actually says Musical Neighbours hours with a gap in it and it's got everyone who released a single up to that point conspicuous by their absence are Anne Haddy and Ian Smith Harold and Madge who as mentioned in the previous edition had their wonderful single Old Fashioned Christmas but did you have many of the tie-in records did your obsession go that far no so I I didn't care much for Stefan Dennis what I know looking back I do now I have that kind of you know um, nostalgia towards him and kind of at the time though he he annoyed me greatly I was into Kylie and Jason and I had a few posters on my wall of of Jason Donovan for a, a brief window where I decided that he was the love of my life. It was a big deal to me once a week to buy my magazines from Four Boys News Agents. And I used to get TV Hits magazine, just 17, and smash it every couple of weeks and get the posters, put them on my wall. There was a, a great bit of work to kind of, you know, rearrange the posters every so often. It became a really big deal. I had the board game as well at one oh, point. Oh, did you? That was... Which I shared with my cousin. Yeah. It was terrible, that game, wasn't it? Wasn't it you had to construct a plot for an episode or something? It'd be like Mrs. Mangle married scott robinson in a bin i think so yeah um we kept it at my nana's house because me and my cousin she always used to think she looked a bit like Kylie minogue and she used to try and dress like her so we'd walk down the street and you know she'd be hoping that people would think she was kylie um i was had to be jason how did you dress as jason i didn't i didn't i just you know humored her but yeah so we were allowed to share the board game and i had a book as well it was yellow and i can't remember i'm looking on our bookshelf here um to see if i can find it did you also have the jason donovan board game straight from the heart no I didn't. People don't believe me there was such a thing. There was a Jason Donovan board game where you had to move around the board and make sort of, it was like jigsaws of Jason Donovan. You had to complete yours first by winning the pieces of it. And the oh, only goodness. evidence that existed is in one of Alexis Ailes' Miss Your Aubergine sketches. He stood in front of like a supermarket shelf full of copies of Jason Donovan straight <laughs> from the heart. That is the most you can date a television programme ever, I think. <laughs> the big question about this sticker album is, you know, obviously at that point there's the famous thing that we were, I think at that point we were 18 months behind Australia with Neighbours and with Home and Away. And eventually yeah. caught up because these take big breaks over Christmas, but occasionally there will be something that would spoiler what was coming ahead because you know the, the BBC would have to do features on their hot new soap and send someone over to Australia mm-hmm. to do a set report on it it'll be 18 months in the future and you know Matt Robinson's got sort of long indie hair Gemma Ramsey's appeared from nowhere and you're like who are all these people I don't recognise them did the sticker album spoiler anything no, I don't think it did. But it was actually when I think back, and, and it's just in my kind of my mind's eye, because like I say, I, I don't think I've got it anywhere and I haven't seen it for many years. But predominantly, it was really boring. It was like pictures of empty rooms, pictures of empty, empty sets and things like that, with the occasional little bit of, you know, something more interesting. But 
basically it was boring empty rooms that you had to kind of construct with your stickers even if i had completed it i don't know really what value it would have added to my life really so who was your favorite forgotten neighbors character from around then that nobody remembers well you see i could go on all day about the forgotten characters from the early days because you know there was kind of a surname but there was lee the girl who went to erinsborough high who lived in a haunted house or something on her own there was who was the one that looked like she was a girl who looked like neil from the young one but my absolute favourite was do you remember Eddie Buckingham? I do I think I remember the name yeah Yeah, he was after Madge and Harold had been on their round the world trip where they Madge and Harold went to Dune Castle as part of their round the world trip they actually filmed it in Scotland I think Harold was the 49th king of Dune or something so it was some ridiculous <laughs> important plot like that and they got there it was just some stones in the ground but when they came back they were suddenly visited by Eddie Buckingham who they met in London who came on stream and struck <laughs> Like a lie, it's Harold! <laughs> Do you remember an Italian bloke who's supposed to be like a Lothario type? He was a love rival to Henry Ramsey, who yes, certainly was, was my favourite. He was called Tony character. Romeo. Yes. And it he was, was forever that they'd say to people, watch out, he knows karate. And he'd sink into a karate pose and then obviously not do any because of the time slot of neighbours. You know, but that would be enough to warn the, the local hoons and larrikins off. As they used to... See, all these words oh, yeah. entered our vernacular from neighbours. It's really quite... But yeah, he was called Tony Romeo, obviously based oh, on the yeah. Tony Rome. I remember one scene where um, Henry pushed him in the swimming pool at um, the hotel. <laughs> he didn't do his karate on it or affect to do his karate on him. <laughs> Oh dear. Okay, well, we're staying in Australia for your second choice, which I've got to admit, I've seen some pretty bad films in the late 80s, early 90s. Well, I've seen some pretty bad films from every era, really, but this was a mystery to me. Let's just hear a bit of it. You're mad. Let me off. It's raining, cats and dogs. This is silly. Just please stop the bus. I've upset you. I'm sorry. I just thought it'd be fun. Come on now. Here, dry your eyes. Thank you. You look like you need a friend. Tell me what's wrong. It's my husband, Ronnie. He's been acting very strangely, and I, I think he might be having an affair. <laughs> Okay, Anna, Wendy cracked a walnut. Yes. Hasn't everybody seen this film? Okay, so this is an obscure... I'm going to describe it as a comedy-fantasy-romance mashup. It's an Australian film, I think from about 1990, and randomly starred Rosanna Arquette, where she plays a basically a bored housewife, kind of having this kind of fantasy romance with a character played by the ever-wonderful Hugo Weaving. It's a really odd film, and yet I've never met anybody else apart from my brother who's seen uh, Wendy Cracked a Walnut. Well, it's really difficult to find out anything about it, because the Wikipedia page is literally one line it says when you crack the walnuts it's a 1990 australian comedy film directed by michael pattinson and starring rosanna Arquette and bruce spence and immediately leaping out yeah. michael pattinson directed prisoner cell block h 
So, you know, what a strange career that is. Bruce Spence was always, I think he's mainly a voice artist, but he always turned up in things like the Mad Max franchise and Lord of the Rings and so on. I think to people who read the very small credit at the end of genre films, he's probably quite well known. But this doesn't seem like a natural fit for him at all. No, it doesn't. I, I think from memory he played the husband of The Bored Housewife. As I said, I've only ever seen it once, I think. And I can't remember, we, my brother and I used to spend um, a lot of time watching films together in the kind of 1990, 91, 92 time. He was living in a various flats in uh, dodgy parts of Leeds. Um, he'd left home by then. I used to go and stay with him on a weekend when I was in my teen years. Um, we were both single, spending Saturday nights, you know, watching videos and having takeaways together. But I thought I was really growing up doing that, like, you know, going over to his flat and kind of, you know, what, staying up all night watching films. And we used to go to his local video shop, which most of the time had limited choice um, <laughs> in the stock. And we, we, yeah, we saw some really crazy things. We also, during that time, saw the Doberman Gang, which I was quite tempted to include here because there again, I can count on one hand the number of people who've seen that as well. So yeah, we'd get a video, we'd get some chocolate, usually star bars, get the video, take it back and, and watch it. And the Wendy Cracks, a walnut was one of the ones we chose because there was nothing else left in the shop, to be honest. <laughs> I think we'd seen everything else and yeah we just went for that one now i had quite a thing for australian films maybe it's linked to the neighbors thing i don't know but i'm a big fan of australian cinema and there are some wonderful australian films from that time and since this is not one of them but it has a special place in my heart because of i guess the context in which i saw it and also because i quite like the idea that no one else has seen it I think um, it kind of gives it a little bit of exoticism, really. Well, this is not one of them. Has kind of answered the next point that was going to bring up, which is, I was going to say it's strange that it's not more well-remembered because there was a thing around that time, I think on the back of Neighbours and Home and Away, oddly, because it's not really the cultural leap you should make, but there was an attempt to try and make Australian cinema into a thing internationally. You know, because they really pushed films like, I mean, there's the obvious gag in The Simpsons where they see that marquee that says Yahoo Serious Festival. And Lisa says, I know those words, but not in that order. I remember big attempts to get behind things like, obviously there was Razorback, the horror film about the mutant pig. I think it was a mutant pig, wasn't it? So long as I've seen it. Dogs in Space, the one with Michael Hutchins. Which, even with Michael Hutchins, that didn't take up. The Year My Voice Broke and Flirting, which are two great films. Yes, two sort of they're amazing. Age films. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but they didn't yeah, really take off. Film. And also, there was The Clinic, which was shown as part of the Channel 4 Red Triangle season. You know, where they showed the contentious films with the Red Triangle in the corner, basically saying... Oh, that's right. You know, ostensibly saying, turn this off if you're easily offended, but basically saying, watch this to people like me. And that was set in a sort of STD clinic, and had a very young Mark Little in it. But None of those took off at all. And I can't really understand why, because, you know, there is a sizable following for exotic mm-hmm. cinema. And I would bracket Australian cinema in with, say, you know, French and Spanish cinema, because it, it isn't really part of the mainstream over here or in America. It never has been. You know, there's the occasional thing like Muriel's Wedding gets through. Mm. The kind of early 90s, there was a little bit of a, a, a time when things did kind of take off a little bit. So you had Strictly Ballroom, and then you had Muriel's Wedding came out. There was Silicon in the desert as well. So there was a little kind of, it peaked a little bit in kind of really small kind of window of time. And uh, yeah, I, I thought that was fantastic to kind of, you know, that some of that was showcased for a little while, but then it kind of, kind of ebbed away again, really, and kind of keeps coming back occasionally. 
surprisingly. But yeah, the, there's some, there are some great Australian films. There are some unusual Australian films too, and uh, I think that's why I, I kind of like it, really. Well, also, there is that thing about, you know, everyone is so fond of the terrible films they got at the video shop. I mean, I could go on for hours and hours about Nice Girls Don't Explode, which nobody else has ever seen. This could only be American. It's a coming-of-age thing about a girl who accidentally, when she gets aroused, sort of makes things blow up. All kinds of films like, you know, Hollywood Shuffle, everything like that. That's a thing you don't really get now. You know, you have to scroll really far into Netflix to find very odd things, which are normally just about somebody falling in love with a prince when he decides to go to Burger King, though it's not called Burger King for a day, on the night he's supposed to be marrying someone else. But when you went to the video shop and you had no other choice, all the good stuff had been taken out mm. and you'd seen all the other rubbish, that was such a an event. And that's something that we've lost completely now. Yeah, that thing of having to, find something you had to get something from the video show you couldn't come back empty-handed you absolutely had to get something it really pushed you to kind of um, choose something random no and not have be so prescriptive about what you want to watch you just sometimes just have to watch anything and actually you, you, you find some real gems sometimes and then sometimes you find Wendy cracked a walnut it is actually on YouTube but it's under what I found out was it's American title do you want to yes. take a guess what that yeah. was oh I can't but it's something really not <laughs> anything like Wendy Cracked a Walnut I bet that's for sure is it something like the relationship or something like that it's dot 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 almost (laughs) what does that tell you about the film Wendy Cracked a Walnut no matter how poor the film might be at least gives you some sense of what to expect from it it's going to be a little bit off the wall a bit of a sideways look at the world almost that doesn't tell you anything at all does it Um, yeah they almost couldn't find a title for it I don't know (laughs) Okay, well, I'm going to take a wild guess that when you weren't actually watching videos from the video shop, you might have spent a lot of your time around them playing your next choice. Now, I know people do complain when I use the sounds of computer games in this that they're too loud and it's made their head fall off or something. So, yeah, turn the volume down just in advance of this clip. Here it is. Okay, those blips and bleeps were from Rogue on the ZX Spectrum. Anna, Tell us more about it. Rogue was a computer game from the early, very early 80s. And I think it kind of developed over a few years. But the version of it that I played was the MS-DOS version. So it's the text version of the game. It wasn't even the exciting Spectrum version or, you know, one of the later versions where it actually had visuals to go with it. It it really was the most basic of computer games. And it was like a dungeon crawling game. So you go through rooms and you had to seek what was called the Amulet of Yendor. You know, in in the last level, there was this ultimate prize that you were kind of searching for. And you had to fight monsters and pick up random stuff. And I think there were around 24 levels something like that and I played it over many years as I say just on the on the computer at home which I had kind of in my bedroom um, and I used to stay up really late at night trying to get through this thing and you'd use the arrow keys and the space bar basically to fight these monsters and try and get past them or pick stuff up and eventually I got to the penultimate level and I got killed and uh, I never recovered from it, really. Never managed to complete the game after many, many years of trying. At the back of my mind, I've always thought, you know, what if, what if, I, what if I had got <laughs> to that last level and found the amulet of Yendor? What, what would my life have been like? Do we know for certain that anyone ever actually did? Maybe that's the thing. Maybe I just need to kind of just accept that I'm never going to find the amulet of Yendor, and you know, that's what life's all about, isn't it? I mean, the famously some games that are almost impossible to finish. I mean, there were some that were impossible to start, like Jack of the Beanstalk on the Spectrum, which I, I'm still haunted by that game now. Basically, you moved and you lost all your lives. 
I'm convinced that something went wrong with the programming of that. The one that everyone normally mentions is there was a game, I think you could get it on the Spectrum, the Amstrad and the Commodore, called Bugaboo the Flea, which I think was originally Italian. It might be an arcade game, but it was a flea jumping through, basically trying to get out almost a well with bits jutting out of it. I think there was a big dragon that tried to stop you. You either got caught by that, or if you mistimed the jump, you lost a life, or sometimes you just ended up back at the bottom again and it was almost impossible but one day in frustration i just hit the keys of my spectrum and he jumped right the way out i finished it by accident and people actually don't believe me about that i wish there was some way of proving that and i can't even remember what the end screen was so i'm wondering if anyone did finish rogue oh i'd love to know i'd love to know what, how that ended because it was it really when you think about it, it was the dullest game you know we're talking when i was playing it, it was very late 80s early 90s you know there, there were more exciting things out there i mean we didn't have you know my friends at school they all had their kind of sega mega drives and uh whatever else i we didn't have that at home we just had some old kind of pcs that my mum's husband kind of brought home from work he was a computer engineer i've never met anyone else who played it it's a bit of a mystery to me as to you know why it wasn't better known because it to me it was really exciting and i like those kind of you know seeking things out kind of games it was a little bit like an episode of nightmare i'd love to have a go at it now maybe and just kind of you know see if i could but i'd get obsessed again and i know it and you know I'd have to quit my job and, you know, just spend my time playing Rogue. And I think that's not really a good move. Would you go for a graphical version or would you have to have the MS-DOS one for purity? Oh, I'd have to have the MS-DOS version, definitely. Definitely. I, you know, I, could, I couldn't I could imagine the camera having the, you know, the more elaborate version. It'd have to be the very basic version. Well, there's hardly any nostalgia for MS-DOS games. I mean, not surprisingly, because if you did finish that, it would just be a line of text telling you that you finished, surely. <laughs> but what that's other true. games did you have around that time? I mean, there were things like Alley Cat and Microsoft Golf with that terrible synthesized yes. voice. Yeah, I was saying to um, my little girl, she's really into Formula One. So she's nine now and she's, she's really getting into it and we had a formula one game which wasn't an ms dos version it was something a bit more advanced than that but on a disc on a floppy disc i think it had the different course and you could choose which course you wanted to drive around the bit i enjoyed most was choosing the course rather than actually doing the driving because i was hopeless at it as my daughter knows now my, my driving in computer game scenarios is terrible there's one called capture the flag that was a little bit later on i think but yeah i played rogue on the zx spectrum and there's not much out there about that version apart from it was from 1988 it was by right. mastertronic and apparently it was part of the flippy flippy series now i know my spectrum i used to read the small print in crash zx spectrum magazine i don't know what the flippy flippy series is and it doesn't sound very flippy flippy really in any of the platforms it was available on so, <laughs> so did it have graphics then the version that you played it did it was kind of overhead it was really as though the graphics were sort of playing catch up with the ideas underpinning the game it all just looked like a bit of a mess really there was so much to keep an eye on there was your inventory there was a timer yeah, there was so many point. things and yeah i think the room sort of evolved as you move through them yeah because on, on the dos version obviously they you know it was dotted lines and some of the rooms were dark when you first went in them others had light in them and the thing that used to drive me crazy was i was always forgetting to eat so uh, you know you'd, lo- you'd lose your energy or whatever yeah the description is the dungeon and the items in it are randomly generated each time the player begins a new game each dungeon level contains a grid of three by three rooms and dead ends so that's probably why you couldn't save it because they wanted to make it as difficult as possible for you each time yes 
Yeah, that that would make sense. Yeah, I didn't pursue a lifelong obsession with gaming. I must admit, I'm not a gamer now. And, um, you know, I didn't kind of, uh, I went off to university and obviously didn't have anything to kind of do anything remotely like that on. Um, you know, I went to university in 1995 and, you know, you didn't have a computer or anything while you were there. Yeah, I never really went went back into it, really. Um, maybe it is because of that experience of, of, of Rogue and kind of that being, you know, in my heart, there's no more room for, for any other games in there it's kind of it's full it's full of 24 levels of, of random rooms full of random stuff okay well speaking of random stuff i'm guessing that even though you weren't playing games at university you might have had to resort to eating your next choice i can't find anything to represent this so here's something funny instead okay let's see meats meats oh here's the ham oh what about this brand it's half the price of that brand hmm internet ham what's that it's the new way to buy ham. This is just a card. Where's the actual ham? Our ham is produced totally online, so we can pass the savings on to you. Just scratch off the panel to get your ham ID, then enter it onto our website, and your ham is emailed to you almost instantly. You'll soon grow to love the weird taste of internet ham from Sinister. Okay, that was the Internet Ham sketch from the Peter Serafinovich show, because that basically, Internet Ham is the polar opposite of your next choice. <laughs> Anna, Sauce Mix, what is this? Oh, goodness me. So Sauce Mix is a product that was in the mid-80s to early 90s, was basically what you ate if you were a vegetarian. It was the kind of the, the first of... See, now if you're a vegetarian, there are a million things you can you can find in supermarkets, in, you know, your general shops. In those days, you basically had to go to a health food shop and in the corner, in a dusty corner on a shelf somewhere, there'd be some sauce mix. And you basically, you took it home and you had to fashion it into kind of the shape you wanted to cook and make into something. So you'd fashion it into sausage shapes or burger shapes. And it was just awful, awful stuff. I can't quite describe the taste. I think it's um, it, it's impossible to describe it. It's the weirdest, weirdest consistency, the weirdest thing, um, and that's what you had to eat. You know that that was that was your life when you you know you you were cooking at home for a vegetarian. I encountered sauce mix in the kind of mid to late 80s when my mum became vegetarian um, and I desperately wanted to be vegetarian too but she told me I was too young and she said I had to be 14 before I could be um, a vegetarian like her and I was thinking the other day my daughter whenever she wants something or wants to do something I always say she can do it when she's 14 and I realised <laughs> I've become my mum so when I did turn 14 I did become vegetarian and even then you know this was 1990 I think and kind of late 90s it was still just Sosmix was 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 what there was to eat. There was Bean Feast as well, which was kind of a, a packet of kind of um, I guess what like soya mints um, that you kind of mix up. It had like a tomato sauce base, and you'd have it with some rice or something like that, or some pasta. And yeah, that was it really. And these the times we're living in now, there's a huge array of wonderful products you can get if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, or you have you know kind of requirements in in terms of your dietary requirements that are a bit different then there was just nothing. And if you wanted to go to a restaurant as a vegetarian, I mean, my goodness, you had to phone ahead and tell them. And, you know, you get there and they'd like curtain you off in a different section so as not to offend the other diners. 
it was a very strange time. Well, I was going to say, you know, it must have been difficult enough being vegetarian at that point. But basically, with this, they, were, they weren't just saying you've got to have this different obscure food that must have taken some finding. What you basically got to do with Blue Peter Make to actually be able to eat it. They couldn't just sell it to yeah. you pre-mixed or anything. You had to... Was that supposed to be some kind of... I hesitate to say, but some kind of moral superiority thing? Like, you know, so you were putting the effort in by... I'm sure, you know, the people actually eating it didn't feel that, but the manufacturers might have thought, yeah, this is a right-on thing. We're better than everyone else because we don't accept the pre-processed muck they hand out to us. We do it by hand. Yeah, or alternatively, if you want to eat, you've got to work for it. See, I'm glad things have moved on from... That was the stigma with vegetarianism at that point, wasn't it? It was very... The CND types, the we work the land characters, Mm. we've opted out of mainstream society. It wasn't seen as a viable sort of lifestyle choice for, you know, just in inverted commas, the ordinary people, was it? You're always treated with a bit of suspicion if... Yes. Around then. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, people thought I was I was rather odd to kind of um, decide that was you know my kind of lifestyle choice at the ticket at that age, kind of in, in your mid teens. Um, I did have a friend uh, at school who also decided to become vegetarian, but all she ate was crisps, which was a little bit limited in terms of kind of you know her diet. At least I you know made the effort to kind of have almost kind of a, a square meal. And yeah, my mum would kind of do sauce mix two or three times a week. <laughs> Honestly, I'm trying to um, think of a way to describe the taste. It's like a burnt kind of taste. It's kind of like um, the weirdest, weirdest thing. I still to this day can't remember what it was made, actually made of. And I don't think there's anything else like it now. I think it does still exist, I think. But I can't think of anything else that would match it in terms of like the consistency and the taste. Because you wouldn't. You wouldn't want to, really. So was that like a self-flagellation thing? It wasn't just you know, the superiority of having to make it yourself. It was, now we must punish ourselves by having something <laughs> utterly, thoroughly <laughs> inedible. Possibly, yeah. yeah. And there was this other thing. We we, um, we got quite excited kind of one day we were in Morrison's and kind of looking in you know, in the freezer section. Um, and we saw these cauliflower cheese grills, kind of a... a bird's eye type company you know they kind of um we thought oh great yeah we'll try those as well that's something else we can have and they were so horrible oh yeah they kind of tasted a bit like sick they were really really awful but you know there again kind of limited you know and kind of what, what else you could have really that wasn't didn't have any meat in it well i have to say putting myself in you know back in the position of the age i was then I mean, even leaving aside for a minute, you know, the ethical ramifications behind dietary choices like that, the very concept of sauce mix makes me think of when you would be forced to go round to play with posh children you didn't like. And they always have foods that you didn't understand. Yeah. They would be really enthusiastic. Okay, Mum, are we having sauce mix today? You think, what's that? Can't have bird-type potato waffles. It is good that the world has moved on since then. I think that's our main takeaway. Well, not takeaway, but you know what I mean. Yeah, it, it is so different now. There's just, just so much. And um, if you went to someone's house, you'd, you'd have to take something with you sometimes, you know, if you're going to eat. Because no one really knew what to give you as a vegetarian. And no one would think of giving you something like Sosmix because you wouldn't know it existed. So you'd, you'd often you'd, you'd take a packet of it with you to kind of, you know... <laughs> Your nana's house or something, and try and get her to kind of dealer going round with this. Of like the worst drug in the world. I remember at university, I uh, I didn't get sosmix because I couldn't get any in York where I went to university. And um, instead, I used to eat a lot of rice choice, which was packet rice basically. You kind of you know you had basically one pan to cook on. Uh, so I'd, I'd I'd have half a packet of rice choice 
which again, you know, is a food stuff that brings back significant memories for me. What was the actual element of choice in Rice Choice? I think the full title was Rice, You've Got No Choice. Okay, well, we're moving back for your next choice from the university days to slightly earlier in time and something that's got even me foxed. So here's a bit of music that might or might not have been in it. That's some aquatic-related wibblings in the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, because other, the school's programme Secrets of the Sea, was this even a TV or a radio school's programme? This was a TV school's programme, but do you know what? I, I, I really flummoxed myself trying to conjure up any details about this programme. It was French. It was a French school's programme. Now, whether that's, you know, a French kind of curriculum, you know, over here doing a French programme, or it was actually French... I don't know. And it was a kind of mystery series. There was two children living in a coastal town, like a really dire, boring, gloomy coastal town in France. And they were trying to investigate this mystery that had happened. And every time it was shoved on, you know, and the you know the VHS was put in the, the player at school, the, the telly was wheeled out and it was kind of brought into the classroom. Just the groans in, in the classroom that we were watching yet another episode of Secrets of the Sea. <laughs> And the titles and this, the kind of the lapping of the waves on the shore and this really kind of whimsical but slightly spooky music that used to come on. I've just got this overwhelming feeling and memory of that, that kind of thinking, oh, no. And normally it was because it was the we had a student teacher for quite a while, you know, teaching us French at that time. And he, he just used to whack this on, I'm sure he did. I think that's all he used to do. So I think it was about a mysterious death. And yeah, like these two young people, I can't even remember. I think they were brother and sister or something like that. But even that detail escapes me. I was tempted to try and track down my friend Louisa from school, who I haven't seen for a really long time, because I'm sure she'd remember this. Um, just to kind of just comfort myself with the, you know, the the um, reassurance that it did actually happen. Well, I'm sure it did, because I've always been obsessed with the, more with the adult sort of foreign language instruction programmes that used to get on, particularly on the BBC, things like Slim John, the one where it's Simon Williams as a robot that's sent to Earth disguised as a man. Suive La Piste, which is a, that's a kind of action-adventure serial thing. Condite, which is <laughs> the German comedy one from the 60s. Sorry, I'm really going off at a tangent here, but uh, <laughs> that's very me. But what I'm wondering about Secrets of the Sea is, was it BBC or ITV? I think it was BBC. And nothing ever happened. This thing that I don't think they ever did solve the mystery. And they took a really long time about it because it felt like an eternity that we were watching this thing. And nothing ever happened. Nobody ever solved whatever this mystery was, whoever died or whatever. It just was like an endless kind of slower than a, a Scandinavian drama you know it, it just felt like eternity you know i was always quite interested in france and french culture and so on when i was too young to watch it whenever it's off school and the itv schools programs were on i was used to watch the french program which was kind of, it was aimed at you know secondary school children and it's kind of like a it was a bit like do you have trick law the french school textbook yeah i think so yeah, yeah it was kind of like that in television form it was like vox popping young people and what ice cream flavors they liked and that sort of thing <laughs> 
But the yeah. thing about it was, why did nobody think this was a bad idea? It opened with animation of a frog hopping towards the front of the screen. <laughs> that was just building stereotypes. I mean, the rest of it was really oh. good. With it. I think it was a guy called Max Bellancourt just went round, you know, as I say, doing reports on Johnny Halliday's comeback tour or whatever. Just that intro, I've never really got over that. It was a really bad idea. That's terrible. You never know with Brexit, we might return to that kind of thing. French teenagers, French school children always seemed really exciting, didn't they? They always seemed really cool and really kind of hip, living this amazing life whenever you saw them in a, in a textbook or on a thing. They always seemed like like they were about 35 rather than 15. And they were always, they were always on the metro going to the hyper. Do you remember how exciting the hypermarket sounded? Yeah, I do, yeah, I it must be better than the supermarket because it's hyper. Exactly, exactly, yeah. When I first went to France many years later, I didn't I didn't go until I was, I think I was 20. Yeah, it, it wasn't as exciting in a hypermarket as, as I thought it was going to be, to be honest. And that is down to, you know, the, the, the school textbooks and the, uh, the excitement that they built in, in my mind about how cool France was. I had a French pen pal as well uh, for a while. I was really into my pen pals. I had about 15 pen pals in, when I was younger. And I had, a, I had a French pen pal called Sophie. And um, her writing was always beautiful. But I think, every, you know, every letter was kind of always the same. It was always about the same kind of thing. <laughs> and I'm sure I did the same back to her as well. When I was at university, my, one of my best friends, she did a French and history degree. And she went and did a year in France for her. Like when I was in the third year, she was over there. For birthdays and Christmas, she would send me a random French CD of really bizarre French pop music. And yeah, she sent some really bizarre things. Was one of them Geordie, the rapping baby? No, but I do remember that. Duh, duh, death <laughs> <a> baby. <laughs> okay, well, in one of my trademark terrible links, we're going from somebody who sat in a high chair to, well, a high seat chair. Let's just see what this advert's all about. It's grand to find a comfortable chair when you're getting on a bit or you've got arthritis. My niece got this from Shackleton's, you know. Shackleton's original high seat. Never thought it'd be so easy to get in and out of. First she sent for their brochure, then went to the showrooms. They'd over a hundred chairs to choose from. Shackleton's high seat chair, it's lovely. Okay, that was that bit for Shackleton's high seat chairs, which is something I have never heard of. Anna, what's going on here? Shackleton's high seat chairs was well, they're a, they're a Yorkshire company. They're they're based in Batley, and they produce high seat chairs, normally used by older people. I would say they look very very comfortable in the the catalogues and on on the advert that used to be on the TV. But that was on in the early eighties, which is what this is all about, really. Was just the most bizarre thing. It was an old lady. She looked a lovely old lady, but the most wooden of, of of actors and she she started the advert by kind of you know kind of slowly climbing into the chair this lovely high seat chair that she'd got from Shackleton's and she she'd say in her kind of her a lovely kind of older lady Yorkshire accents about it's grand to find a comfortable chair after all these years and the music in the background was this kind of whimsical kind of and it was just kind of creating this feeling of what I guess was supposed to be kind of comfort and um you know kind of homeliness but it was just very bizarre and very stilted but really quite kind of kind of sweet, I guess, in a way. But my brother hated this advert. He absolutely <laughs> hated it. And just, you know, sometimes you take something with, you know, a hatred or something just, you know, randomly out, out of nowhere. He really didn't like this advert. So obviously me and my other brother, whenever it was on the TV, we, we would record it. 
on, on the uh, the Betamax, and we would um, find ways to make him watch it. So we, we'd pretend we'd recorded something else, maybe you know, like one of his favourite shows, or you know, oh, this really great thing was on the telly. You know, I don't know, um, status quo were on or whatever it was, and uh, we, we'd put it on for him, or get him to put it in the in the machine and press play, and it would be the Shackleton's high seat chairs advert. Every time it was on, we'd record it, and every time we would try and make him watch it. I've no idea why he hated it with a passion like he did, but it was highly amusing trying to tease him and get him to watch it every time. Well, it is interesting how, because there was that regional structure to ITV in those days, and you did get different sort of local specific business adverts. And it's odd how you got used to your own ones, but when you went anywhere else, they seemed really weird and alien. Because, you know, I remember all kinds of local ones from the Granada region. There were things like, there were lots of, I better not name any names, but businesses run by gentlemen who thought that because they ran a business that entitled them to be a celebrity fronting their own adverts, who later almost invariably went down for various misdemeanours. Were things like there was Sparta Sports, which was a it was a discount sportswear shop, and the sort of people who never so much as put one foot in front of the other in the name of sport went to get their latest togs. The advert was just a still picture of a crowd at a football match and some loop cheering, and some people go Sparta Sports, Sparta Sports, Sparta Sports, with that that <laughs> emphasis on the S, just singing that the whole thing right the way through. And that's all. It didn't even tell you where it was. There were businesses like. <laughs> Tommy Balls, the shoe warehouse and so on, which we just took in Australia. We made fun of them. We didn't think it was odd, but I remember we went on holiday to... I think it was when we went to Torquay, and they used to have... Not every region had one. And it was a carpet showroom called Courts, where a kind of, like, glittery showbiz man jumped out in the advert and started hopping down all the piles of carpets, singing a song about, I sincerely hope to see you all in Courts, the tune of the Galaxy song from Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. And this was on. And then it was like in The Simpsons went through the advert for Gabbo, and they just, like, sat there staring at the TV. And we were like, what? just happened was that just really on <laughs> just couldn't process this, this weird advert anyone local must have just thought oh it's it's a court's advert again i don't know if it's because local businesses are in a lot of ways local businesses they're more steeped in and i just not meaning it in a legal gentleman sense but but local customs, you know, the local vernacular and so on. Yeah, it's quite sweet, really, isn't it? It's kind of, I like that, you know, there is that kind of acknowledgement that, you know, it's something really kind of, I guess, peculiar to the area or there's only a handful of people, actually, that would know what they're on about. And I think that that's really really nice i remember going to the cinema and seeing local adverts as well i don't even know that does that still happen in cinemas where before the trailer start they had a, a reel of kind of local adverts for like the, the the local indian restaurants or things like that i don't think they do anymore i mean i've got such i remember with such fondness the the classic cinema on allerton road in liverpool which was a, a minor shopping street outside the main shopping area but all the adverts were for the businesses two doors down literally <laughs> But it wasn't just restaurants. There was a there was a window showroom that had an animated advert. It's something. It was like a cartoon woman in a bikini posing behind windows. There were people wolf whistling in the cinema. How desperate must they have been for some entertainment? And there was a 
brilliant one for an optician down the road called Bennett and Batty, but they'd actually made a comedy thing on that street. And it started, Dave bought his glasses from a tailor because he thought they looked trendy. And they had him, like, he tried to order a drink in, like, the bank down the road. And he tried to chop a pinball machine in what I assume was one of the pubs down the road. And then he said, then he decided to come to Bennett and Batty. And he walks on and he walks into the door with his fashionable glasses on. And that was a masterpiece. I don't know if they even exist anywhere anymore. The effort they put into that was amazing compared to, you know, as you say, the usual, you know, we see a picture of the Taj Mahal, then the interior of a restaurant, some very bad sitar music on it. I always wondered with the the Shackleton's advert whether it was like um, the the granny of, of, you know, the kind of the bloke who owned the factory or something. Because it just seems so kind of um, so stilted and kind of um, unprofessional, I guess. Uh, but yeah, you know, I seem to remember the, the, they had a lot of kind of you know the, the kind of pictures of the showroom with the shares and people. Um, that thing of you see uh, people choosing something in the shop. You know, you always get in a kind of that kind of advert. <laughs> kind of there's a voiceover while people are, like, pretend to choose it. Kind of all that, you know, and kind of um, and then the little the titles that come up at the end just saying the address, like the full address of the shop. And in at that stage. When, when I was watching that I hadn't never been to Batley but yeah I remember going years later walking through Batley and walking past the factory and being actually quite excited because that was Aww. the Shackleton's factory and I remembered it you know from years before which was quite nice really so it obviously had you know a big impact on me not so much my brother who uh, you know is still kind of reeling from the, the memory of it all I was going to say as a closing note let's turn it back on you what did you hate that they kept torturing you with okay so I had two older brothers I was the only girl and they tortured me with various things really they often would um, steal my Cindy dolls in kind of kidnap scenarios with their action men and really upset me the difficult middle brother and i remember once he he drew on with felt tip permanent felt tip on my cindy doll's face did he draw a mustache or like cabalistic symbols he drew um a crucifix on her forehead and um various other things they they, my my brothers were were kind of into kind of like a kiss as well so i think Potentially, they might have done the kind of the, the face makeup. My oldest brother, he helped out at the local youth club once. Cause my mum was doing the play scheme. She was a youth worker, and he offered to do the face painting for these little kids once. And um, he did he did the face painting, but he did half the kids with um, kind of kiss makeup, face <laughs> um, makeup. And so he had these little kids running around, you know, kind of with, with the kind of the black and white kiss makeup, um, not knowing, obviously, of course, what, what it was. I don't think he was asked back. Well, I'm sure those kids who had the kiss face paint had boom, boom, a crazy, crazy night that night. <laughs> and it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Top of the box, the complete guide to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes, from the theme to the Six Wives, Heaven of the Eighth, to Awesome Doom by Ed the Duck. More details at timworthington.org.